Today's reading comes from Luke 13. If you would please stand and hear the word of life. And now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called over to her and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrite, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox and his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from the bond on this Sabbath day? And he said these things, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were being done by him. And he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. The word of the Lord. This week we are in the second week of our new sermon series that we've titled Return and Rest. And in this series, it's, we're taking a look at stewardship. How is it that as disciples of Jesus, we are to rightly use that which we have been given according to how God would have us use those things? And so, in this series, we're taking a look at our time, our money, and our energy and what God has to say. If you look at the scriptures, there's a ton that God has to say about how we use our time, our money, and our energy because they ultimately are expression of the heart and what we truly want. Now, uh, as this is a sermon series on stewardship, what you will not hear in this series is that all of your time, money, and energy need to go to Rockwall Press and be devoted to this church. But what you will hear if you look closely is that God does ask you to devote all of those things to him. He asks you to see your life in a certain way to where everything that you have really is not yours, but it's his. Now, the purpose of using our time, money, and energy correctly and in the way that God would have us is basically why we've titled, entitled this sermon series, Return and Rest. That when we rightly use what God has given us, it offers rest to a restless people. It offers solidness to people that feel anxious. It offers peace to people that feel chaotic. It's a way of how God allows us to experience peace and trust in him. And today, last week we opened up with Isaiah 30, and this week we're going to narrow in on time. What does the Bible have to say about how we use our time? 
And in particular, this morning, we're going to think about time from a particular angle. What do you fill your time up with when you're waiting on God? We've all been there, waiting on God for his goodness. What do you fill your time up with when you're waiting on him? When you're waiting on an encounter with God and his goodness? As we, start our, as we started our passage today, we have, two, we have two people, this ruler of the synagogue and this woman with this disability, who are both in a position of waiting on God. The ruler of the synagogue, who is most likely a Pharisee, is waiting on God to show up, waiting on the Messiah to come and restore Israel to this great kingdom once again. And then you have this other woman, this woman who's disabled, probably waiting for her next meal, probably waiting to see where her aid and her next meal might come from, waiting on someone to see her in her estate. And to offer their goodness. What do we fill our time with when we're waiting on God? We start off the passage with Jesus is the guest preacher in the local synagogue. Probably asked to speak there since he was in town. And as he's preaching and teaching, he stops right in the middle of a sentence and he sees this woman. He stops in the middle of what he's saying because he sees this woman. And so what does he see? He sees a woman from the passage that tells us that she was disabled for 18 years with a disability that caused her to be doubled over on herself, a disfigurement of the spine, and an incredibly disabling uh, situation she's in. And what if we looked a little bit closer at this woman? What if we stopped mid-teaching and tried to see what Jesus might see in this woman? Well, I could say that I think I'm somewhat familiar with this woman. I think I know her a little bit. I've seen this woman countless times in India. A woman crippled, hobbling on a cane, a woman doubled over on herself, a woman disfigured and disabled. And if watching those women in India throughout the years are any indication of what this woman in our passage is like, I think we might have a good idea of what her life was like. We would see her waiting on the outside of groups because she could easily lose her balance and be knocked over in her frailty. I think we'd see her walking on the far side of the road so that other people could pass because it took so long for her to get from A to B. I think if they handed out rice, we'd see her standing in the background because there's no way she could work her way up and carry the weight of the rice on her own in her estate. She'd have to wait on someone else to think of her and to come and bring her food. She probably would be the one that would wait also for everyone else to go into the synagogue because it would take her so long to get up the stairs that she didn't want to block everybody and create a bottleneck going in. And so she'd wait on everybody else to go in, and then she would go in. But then all the best seats were taken. Perhaps that's why Jesus had already started his teaching when he sees her. Do you see this woman's incredible helplessness? Do you see this woman's powerlessness over her circumstances and her complete inability to do anything about her situation? Do you see her complete inability to fix herself? This woman lives with a constant understanding. She lives with a constant reality of her need and her desperation and her helplessness. She lives a life of waiting. Now, do you identify with this woman? Does this woman in her situation tell your story? 
Do you identify with this woman in her helplessness, in her powerlessness, and in her complete inability to do anything about her situation? Do you identify with this woman? Well, the truth is, you're supposed to. That's why this story is here, because she tells your story. When we see miracles like this, Jesus doesn't do these miracles in the scriptures because he's a really nice guy. Jesus does these miracles and he heals these people because they, in their inability, tell us something about ours. When he heals the blind man, it tells us something about our blindness. When he heals the cripple, it tells us something about our crippling. When he heals the leper, it tells us something about our uncleanness. Do you identify with this woman? And that's the very tension that this uh, situation creates in our passage, is whether or not you do identify with this woman. Because as soon as Jesus heals her, the room is split in two. Some glorify God with her, and others do not, and they are put to shame. It's an important question of this passage is, do you identify with this woman? Jesus would have commanded a packed house anywhere he went at this point in his ministry. And you can imagine when he stops mid-teaching and he sees this woman and he says, woman, would you come here? And then she comes forward slowly and he bends over as she's bent over and he says, woman, you are freed from your disability. And in that moment, she stands up after 18 years of being disabled and she glorifies God. You can bet that I bet there was a complete run on healing after that. It's like the doors open at a Black Friday sale. Everybody rushes up to Jesus. Would have been probably somewhat chaotic. People identifying with this woman and saying, yes, heal me too. I want that same power that she experienced. Heal me. Help me. I want to encounter that same thing. But then there's also the other side of the room, which doesn't identify with her at all or empathize with her. And we see that in the ruler of the synagogue. He doesn't identify with this woman. He actually stands up to try and bring a little order to this chaos that Jesus has caused. And he just tells everybody, he says, hey, stop. There's six days for you to come and ask for healing, and today is not one of them because today's the Sabbath. Today's the Sabbath day, and we're not going to have any of that business here. Not in my house. It's not what today is for. He says he's indignant. He's so angry that he almost becomes undignified in the way that he tries to stop everyone from coming to Jesus to seek healing and a relief from their burdens. What's he implying? He says, Jesus, you've broken the law. You're an unrighteous sinner, and this woman should not have been healed. And Jesus' response is quite simple. He says, actually, today, the Sabbath day, is the absolute perfect day for this woman to be healed. Of all the days of the week, this is the best day. You think it shouldn't happen at all, but actually, if you understood the Sabbath, you would recognize that this is the perfect day for this woman to be released from her bondage. And it shows that this ruler, who's probably a Pharisee, has completely missed something. There is an incredible distance between where Jesus, the God he claims to serve, is at and where he is. And you see this conversation about the Sabbath and the law. Now, just to forewarn you with this passage, is that this is one of those passages that has a lot of baggage to it. As you see this conversation unfold about the Sabbath and the purpose of it and the law... It's really, we have to understand that beneath the surface, this is a conversation that is actually not just happening here, but it has happened for centuries in Israel. What is the purpose of the Sabbath? What is the purpose of the law? 
And so, that we might understand where Jesus is at, and for us to be able to understand how this passage uh, applies to us, we have to do a little bit of legwork in understanding, yes, what is the Sabbath for, and what is the purpose of the law. And we're just going to kind of boil that down into essentially two points. Is one, how does God structure our time? And the second is how we can structure our time. How does God structure our time, and how do we structure our time? So the question is, what was the Sabbath really for? Why was today a great day on this Sabbath day for this woman to be released from her bondage? Well, if you know the Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment is that you shall take a Sabbath day, a day to cease, to end from all of your work. That just as the God rested on the seventh day from creation, so you too, Israel, will rest on the seventh day. All You will stop, your family will stop, your livestock will stop, your servants will stop. Everything comes to a complete halt in Israel, and you will rest. So if you look at this, from the beginning, when God claims a brand new people, he structures their time and he orders their schedule so that they constantly come to this place of rest. That there's a type of work that leads to rest. But is it just because God wants us to put our feet up on a Saturday or, a, or Sunday for us, take a little naparoo? Well, that's part of it. There is a rest from physical labor. But if we look at Deuteronomy 5.15 from our assurance of pardon today, we see that there's there's a greater purpose for the Sabbath. It says that remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So worked into Israel's calendar is this place where they can come to rest, but they stop doing a certain kind of work so that on the Sabbath they can do the greater work which is to stop and remember who God is so that they don't forget. They can remember who God is for them. And who is that God? He is the God that delivered you from your bondage in the house of Pharaoh. He's the God who delivered you from slavery. That when you were poor, when you were helpless, and when you were oppressed and could do nothing about your situation, I am the God that came to you and delivered you from your bondage because I am good. And you will not forget that. You will work that into how you spend your time. Because I am the bondage delivering God. But, if we go a little further, the Sabbath wasn't just a day of the week. The very purpose of the Sabbath wasn't just for Sunday or Saturday for them. It was supposed to be the other first six days of the week. This theme of being delivered from bondage, this thing of being delivered from oppression was throughout the entire way that God structured Israel to relate to one another. That they would be a culture and a people that released people from burdens. Why? Because God released them from their burdens. And so he said, you will look after the, the, the poor, the powerless, and the weak, and the vulnerable among you. So on those six days when Israel went about their business, they had to remember the laws about the sojourner. That you will care for this foreigner in your midst and you will care for him and you will provide for him. Why? Because you were once a foreigner in a strange land. But I am the Lord your God that delivered you and gave you a home. 
You remember there were gleaning laws that on the six days of the week where they would harvest their crops, they could only harvest a certain portion, so they would leave a certain portion for those who were poor, those who were oppressed, those who didn't have the same opportunities as the landowners could come and work and find rest from their poverty. Why? Because I am the Lord your God that provided for you when you had nothing. You have the, sa- the year of Jubilee. Every seven years, all debt in Israel completely wiped clean. Who doesn't love that law? Yes, Lord. All the debt completely gone. Why? Because I am the Lord your God that has been good to you, and you are indebted to me, but I do not hold that against you. I am not the God that holds your debt over you, and neither will you be a people that hold debt over one another. And in all of this, you see that the Sabbath was not, it wasn't just simply a day of the week, it was a way of life, of constantly remembering your dependence upon God, and that the only reason you have anything at all is because of his goodness and because he delivered you from your bondage. So he didn't want an Israel thinking about all the private property they had and all the ways that they could glory and the things that they've been able to earn for themselves. They would remember who God is and it came from his goodness, not from their ability. They would remember that they didn't choose where they were born. They didn't choose to have the health or the skills or the talents they did. All of those things are a gift that allow them to have the possessions and resources they have. And they would remember their life is dependent upon God who delivers them from bondage. And so, of course, Jesus says today is the perfect day for this woman to be released because when I show up, the bondage-freeing God, of course, that's what happens. This is the story that's been being told this whole time. That when you encounter me, you are freed. Now if we pause for a second to see where you're at, do you believe that story? Do you really believe that God delivers from bondage? Do you really believe that God will deliver you from your burdens? Do you really believe that God wants to deliver you from that sin that you've struggled with for years and won't go away? I talked with someone this week about this passage and they finally just admitted and they said, I don't. I don't believe that God will deliver me. I feel like every time I wait on his goodness, he doesn't show up. I feel like he doesn't care. I feel like I'm constantly burdened with this and he was not going to come and deliver me. Do you believe that God delivers from bondage? Your answer to that question will ultimately reflect in how you spend your time. If you believe that God offers rest, then you will devote part of your time to seeking that rest. But if you don't believe that, then you will seek to rest from your burdens in other areas and in other things. How we spend our time is ultimately an expression of our belief in these promises and in the story that we have been given. Do we seek the rest and the freedom from bondage that Jesus offers to us? What do we do when we wait on that freedom? Well, the reason we see such distance between this ruler of the synagogue and Jesus is because of how this ruler of the synagogue spent his time as a result of waiting on God. And it's actually a picture of what can happen when we wait on God in a manner that is not what he intends for us, and we wait poorly. If he's a Pharisee, then if we look at the story of the Pharisees and how they actually started, 
They began during a period when Israel was waiting a long time for God to show up. If you look at your Bible between Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and Matthew, there's 400 years in between those two books. 400 years. Goodness, that's a long time to wait on God. 400 years of silence from God. And in their waiting, Israel began to say, what what are we going to do in our waiting? And they began to look back at their story. And they saw where Israel failed time and again, and part of the prophecies of why they went into exile and why they were being ruled by all the other empires of the world is because they never became a people of rest. They always spent their time seeking rest and security and other things, and they never became a Sabbath people that depended upon God. And they said, you know what? That's why we're in this situation is because we never did what God asked us to in the law. And so now we don't want that story anymore. We're going to fix it. We're going to wait on God and we are going to become super law keepers. We are going to find rest in our perfection of how we keep the law. So much so that we're going to start adding some laws to the law that God gave us just so we don't break it. We're going to start adding to it to show that we can become masters of the law and find rest. And there is where we get the distance that we see between the Pharisees and Jesus. Because Jesus comes along and he says, you were never meant to master the law. It was supposed to master you. It was supposed to completely overwhelm you in its impossibility. You're supposed to use it to see something deep within yourself, that it wasn't a tool given you, given to you so that you could just deal with your sin. It was supposed to show you how deeply within your heart sin is rooted. It was supposed to show you how helpless and powerless you are to fix what's truly wrong with you. But they would use it just to check the box and go on, and they completely missed it. So much so, they missed it so badly that when the Lord their God was in front of them, they couldn't even see him. And they claimed to know him. They claimed to be the very people that wanted what he wanted. So perhaps the law should have gone like this. Laws to bring a bull and an ox. The best of what you have. The law was supposed to make someone realize that, yeah, you know what, even though I bring that bull and that ox, every time I do, year after year, I can't stop thinking about how much that bull would go for in the market and how I could use that money. It's supposed to say that when we do gleaning laws, it would recognize that, yeah, you know what, even though I allow them to come and glean and I follow the law, why is it that I still want all of that for myself? Why don't I want to love my neighbor the way you've called me to? God, why don't I want the same things that you want? Why is it that I don't take joy in what you take joy in? Why is it that I am still afraid and don't trust in you? What is it that's in me that keeps me so distant from you? Why is my heart so unbelievably crippled and bent inward upon itself? And they missed it. The law tells us two things to sum us up where we're at to this point. The law tells us and was supposed to show us how deeply sinful we are and how helpless we truly are. But it also tells us the story that points us to a good God that delivers us from bondage that we can do nothing about. And they missed it. That's why David says God does not care about the bulls and the ox. He doesn't care about those sacrifices at all. 
The true sacrifice is a broken heart. Is one who offers that broken, deformed heart to the Lord. It was supposed to drive us to God because we realize how desperate and helpless we are. We realize that distance that's there between us and Him. But the Pharisees used the law to feel secure. They used the law to actually hide their need instead of facing it. So, you know, they would feel guilty and they'd just tithe a little more. They'd tithe out of their spice rack. They'd give a tenth of their spices. They'd feel a little ashamed and they'd show up at the synagogue work day and put a couple of hours in to feel better about themselves. Maybe they'd pray a little more. Maybe they'd read their Torah a little more. And they would always use these things as a way of hiding their real need and taking that to the Lord. So they structured all their time around ignoring their brokenness. So when Jesus comes along in this passage, he says, you are utter hypocrites. You claim to love God, and yet you show all the time in your life and the way you live it that you have no need for him. You can fix it all on your own. You have no need for a bondage-breaking God. He says, you claim to love God, but you use the law to simply love yourself. And in short, what he is telling them is that, you know what? Even though you walk into this synagogue with your head held high and sit in the high seats and the high places and the places of honor, you cannot see that your soul is desperately and helplessly bent inward and over upon itself. You cannot see your disability whatsoever. And you use the very thing that God gave you to hide from it. So when Jesus calls them forward, they would never come. So to sum up this story of how we use our time as we look at the Pharisees, it's essentially a story of what happens when we fill our time with a type of simple obedience that makes us feel just good enough to ignore our brokenness and keep God at arm's length. It's a type of obedience where we check the box and yet we ignore that place of helplessness and powerlessness where God wants to show up and encounter us but they would never meet him there because they were unwilling to face that brokenness and need. They had it all under control. So why do we need to know this? Of what we do when we fill up our time as we look at the Pharisees. Why do we need to know what can happen to us in our waiting? Well, get to the parable of the mustard seed. This response to Jesus after this healing that if you are going to try and follow Jesus, waiting is inevitable. It's one of the hardest things about our faith is coming to that place of difficulty and hardship and realizing that your timing and God's timing are not the same thing. That's one of the hardest things about our faith is that there is a distance between what we want and what God wants. And we are inevitably going to be forced to wait on him. And so Jesus gives this parable of the mustard seed. Basically, just a simple example that what is the kingdom of God like? What is this bondage-breaking power that comes into the world like? Well, it starts off as a really small seed, but then over time it eventually grows into a tree that offers rest to the birds of the air. Rest is not something that the kingdom brings immediately now. It's actually something that is a product of a process. The rest in the kingdom is a product of something being cultivated, intended to, and cared for. 
then rest happens. Rest in the kingdom is a product that comes after hard work. But not the work of the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees did a really, worked really hard at ignoring their sin. And in this parable, Jesus would say that for us to do the work of the kingdom, we have to do the hard work of owning and recognizing our sin. And we know how hard that can be, do we not? Like Ryan said in the confession this morning, we know the difficulty of whenever we decide to try and deal with sin in our lives, an addiction, a thing that we know we need to put away, a thing that we struggle with that brings damage and causes problems and we're tired of the consequences that it causes. We know the hard work that is involved in seeking to be obedient. So, we set ourselves to obedience and we say, you know what, I want to work on that issue in my life. And so we start to work and we try to work really hard. But then over time, we realize that the work gets really hard. It's really difficult to be obedient. It's really difficult to try and put away sin in our lives because whenever we try to be obedient, we actually realize then how deeply that sin sinks into your heart. The person that is addicted to pornography realizes how deep it sinks into their heart whenever they try to stop. The person who's addicted to substance abuse realizes how hard and how deep it sinks into their heart whenever they try to quit. The person that is angry and tries to deal with that anger realizes how angry they are when they try to be obedient and to put away anger. And eventually it becomes overwhelming. It feels impossible. We feel like we're always going to deal with this and we feel completely helpless and powerless. That temptation that it's always there, always beckoning to us, and we think to ourselves, this is never going to go away. I'm tired of dealing with this, and I feel like I've waited on God to come and break this bondage of sin in my life, and so I don't want to do it anymore because he doesn't show up. And we give up. And we quit. We avoid that place of helplessness, that place of realizing our complete inability to do something about the very thing that disables us. And so then, when we quit, we don't completely reject God. But then we begin to settle into a type of simple Christianity, a simple faith. We start to do the things that don't really require that much sacrifice. So, you know, we go to church, we'll tithe a little bit, we'll pray a little more, we'll read our Bibles, we'll spend time, and we'll do the Christian thing of having Christian friends. And yet we settle into this simple kind of obedience-based faith where we only do the things that are really simple for us, but then we realize over time that we never feel like we are encountering the power of Jesus because we are always ignoring the places that he wants to meet us. That our life has actually settled into a faith where we ignore our need by doing the simple things. And yet we miss out on the very place that Jesus wants to meet us. So we make that same mistake that the Pharisees make in our waiting on God is that we end up just settling for a faith where we go through the motions. We settle for a faith where we kind of do the things that make us feel just good enough about ourselves to where we, in the end, ignore our own brokenness and keep God at arm's length because we're never willing to come and answer that call to meet him in the place where we feel most powerless and the most weak and the most vulnerable. And when we do that, we give up experiencing the power of God that this whole time has promised that he delivers from bondage. 
And the danger of the Pharisees is that we often can live their story. The danger of that is the same danger for them, or the danger for us was the same danger for them, is that we actually think we know God, but in the end we realize that we don't. How do I know that I have lived that, in that place of being like the Pharisee? Filling my time with kind of a pseudo-obedience, but never really encountering Jesus. Let me just ask you this. Can you name one place in your life right now that we are trying to seek freedom? Can you actually name your sin? Can you call it what it is? Do you spend enough time thinking about your heart to know where you're incapacitated, where you fail, where you're weak? And if not, perhaps you've settled into just going through the motions. And the reason this must be said is that if we continue to relive, if we relive the story of the Pharisees, then we shouldn't be surprised when what happened to them happens to us. That in the end, we think that we know God, but we don't. Do you believe in the power of a bondage-breaking God? Are you willing to go to that place and spend the time and the energy to say, God, I know that this is going to be hard and difficult, but I trust you in your goodness. Are you willing to go back and do the hard work of the kingdom that actually focuses on our sin? It's in those places we realize how much we need the Lord Jesus. Are you willing to go back and do that hard work of constantly saying, I know today's going to be hard. But Jesus, I want to trust in you because you are the God that delivers from bondage and I'm dependent upon you. I can do nothing about this and I will wait on your goodness because I know that my heart is crippled and bent inward upon itself and your goodness is my only hope. This morning, Jesus invites you back into that work of the kingdom maybe that you've put off. Maybe he invites you to continue that work that you are trying now. That you are seeking to put away that sin. But the promise for both, no matter where you're at, is that he invites us to that place where we feel the most helpless, the most powerless, and we feel our inability the greatest. So that we might experience the power of him that he offers to us. So do you identify with this woman? in all of her helplessness and in her weakness, she tells your story. And just like her, Jesus sees you just as you are. And he invites you into that place where you feel the most burdened and the most helpless. And what's true of her might be true of you, that you too would encounter the power of a bondage-breaking God. Because that's the story that's been, that's been told to us the whole time. He stands before you today and calls you forward. And he says, will you come to me? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness to us. We recognize that sometimes we can spend our time going through the motions. We can spend our time doing things that kind of make us feel better about ourselves or help us to ignore the very sin that you came to free us from. You know we are often settled into that type of rhythm and yet you are still gracious to us and you give us stories like this that remind us that you are the God that broke the power of sin and death and brokenness. Help us to see that you offer a rest that is far better. 
Help us to see that even though it is so difficult sometimes to try and be obedient and we feel the power and the weight of our sin, perhaps it's just so. We might feel all of that so we might experience that your power goes far deeper than that. We want to be a people that long for that rest. Help us to hear your call this morning to come, to follow after you and to pick up our cross and to be busy about the kind of work the kingdom work that brings rest. Meet us in our need. Meet us in our helplessness. And help us all to have the encounter that this woman had. We ask all these things in your precious name. And everybody said, Amen.